Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with Michael Sanderson and Drew Jabin joining the podcast with us. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the Spending Affordability Committee and what that means for the state's budget, big ticket items like Kerwin. We'll talk about vaccines and the teachers asking to be put at the top of the list for a vaccine prep. And we'll just top off a bunch of issues that we've been talking about here recently on the podcast. But Michael and Drew, The big news this week, Spending Affordability Committee, it has a lot to do with the budget and moving forward at the state and the county level. But Michael, first of all, how are you today? How are things holding up back home? You have some snow on the ground. Yeah, got a little snow uh, up a little further north in Anne Arundel County, but, uh, you know, doing okay here. Everybody's being safe and smart. And uh, I don't know, I'm climbing the walls, counting flowers on the wall. I think that's where I am right now. That sounds about right, and I think everybody can probably relate. Drew, how are you? How are things holding up on your end? They're good. I'm quite um, upset about no snow in Annapolis, but besides that, doing well. Yeah, the the Chesapeake Bay has a tendency to kill any snow chances for Annapolis, but Michael, it's just a little bit further up. You definitely have some snow, so I'm sure the kids are excited, but we're all counting flowers on the wall at this point. <laughs> All right, so let's jump right into it. Let's talk about the big news of the week, the Spending Affordability Committee. And let's remind everybody what this is. I mean, they are charged with making recommendations for state spending, new debt authorization, and they also deal with state personnel levels. They've always met since the 1980s, and the legislature nearly always follows the Spending Affordability Committee's recommendations. And this really sets the tone for session. Yeah, this is one of those, like everyone in Annapolis kind of understands this is the big framework for the budget. It kind of sets the tone for everything. Like, is this the year to ask for more money, cut back? These spending affordability meetings are a super big deal. And I, I guess we probably should issue a nerd alert for our listeners, many of whom will be energized to hear that. But, but, you know, some of what we're talking about are nuts and bolts of fiscal issues. But even if you're not a fiscal person exactly, if you're interested in a particular program or some initiative, the ability to find funds for things that you care about is usually a function of these bigger picture fiscal issues. So even non-money people tend to follow this kind of stuff this time of year. And now, Michael, I guess, you know, the big headline will be, the, the Spending Affordability Committee is recommending to tap into the state's rainy day fund to address a budget shortfall for 2022. And of course, that's the budget that the General Assembly will be dealing with when they come to town. I think there are some other big takeaways here, but let's talk first about that recommendation to tap into the rainy day fund. And, you know, the Spending Affordability Committee, their latest forecast does show that in the current fiscal year, we'll have a $778 million surplus, but we have an expected structural deficit of $817 million for fiscal 22. That's obviously top of mind. So, Michael, first of all, remind listeners of the purpose of the Rainy Day Fund and why the Maryland General Assembly and the governor traditionally have been hesitant to draw from it. Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to make this 
too tortured, but I would say just about every level of government is well advised to follow a policy of leaving some money in the sock in case things go bad. So it's just a wise practice. Um, there's you know guidance from like the the government uh, accounting boards. Um, this is the kind of question that bond raiders. Remember a few weeks ago we we, we talked with a, a former analyst for from uh, Standard and Poor's about county's credit worthiness and so forth. So everybody sort of wants your government to engage in best practices when they handle budgets and so forth. And one of them is leave a little money behind to help you through a rough patch if you need it. So, you know, the the, the term of art is t- tends to be the rainy day fund. We have a more formal name for it in statute, but everybody calls it the rainy day fund. And that's the image there is when times are tough, you should have some place to go. So, um, the what you've seen in media coverage over the last couple days of this has been, in my judgment, understandably superficial. But the the the, the governor has expressed an interest on this front, and the spending affordability committee has basically said this: what we have coming up is a weird, hopefully short-term circumstance that merits going into this rainy day fund for some of the dollars. But it's important that the idea here is not we're going to tap the whole rainy day fund, use every penny of it, and basically take the nest egg. So it's more, you know, it's 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 a more reserved recommendation than that. I think we could talk about that. Right. And so traditionally, 5% of revenue is reserved for the rainy day fund. Recently, it's been closer to 6%. So really, you know, the idea here would be to use $200 million, and it would still leave about a billion dollars in the rainy day fund in, at the end of the fiscal year 22, and that's about 5%, and that's where they like to be. So there's some extra money there that they've been keeping around that 6% mark. Seems like maybe the idea now is to draw some of that money and still keep it at about 5%, which, again, is is where they like to be with it. Right. So, I mean, the, the logic seems like, okay, if, if if the state's general fund budget is about $20 billion and you have a hiccup in revenues or something like what we're experiencing, which is some short-term awkwardness in your revenue structure or a short-term demand for particular services, you set aside 5%. It's about a billion dollars. Over the last number of years, we've been a little more conservative and we've been putting more than we absolutely have to. So we've had more than 5% in this fund to draw it down to that 5% level. It does not really like shock your imagination. It doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, Maryland has become a reckless, crazy spending state and we need to downgrade their creditworthiness. I think the idea here is we've built a little bit extra cushion and these are the circumstances where we would use just that extra, not go into the 5% base that we keep for, I don't know what exactly, but for for best practice. And so, yeah, of course, that has to do with the state's credit rating. As you mentioned, the bond rating agencies like to see that money in the sock. Is it fair to say, Michael, that it's raining and it's time to tap into this fund? At least that's what the Spending Affordability Committee is saying. Fair to say it's raining, at least when we look at the budget for 22. I, I think there's a really strong case to be made. And, and I will I will. Um, point people in the direction of the blog article you wrote on the Conduit Street blog, sort of with an analysis of the discussion that the committee had. But I think 
you can make a really strong case that this is exactly why you set aside reserves, that what we think we're going through with our economy right now should be temporary, and that once we get enough vaccines and enough people immunized and we can get back to something that looks relatively normal, that we should see the Maryland economy get back and regain the short-term losses that we've been suffering and seeing. So if you believe that to be the case, then this isn't like let's use our rainy day fund money to patch over the first year of what's going to be a multi-year U-shaped you know, extended recession. So this isn't that. This is we're in a short-term thing and let's patch it over with some money we've got in the sock. I, I think this is the ideal circumstance to use this kind of funds, I think, from an, from an economics point of view, I think. And Michael, this is nothing like in 2009 when the Spending Affordability Committee was looking at billions in uh, projected structural deficit. I mean, we knew things were going to be tough for the coming fiscal years, but this is nothing like back in the Great Recession when there was a real, real issue and nobody quite knew what to do. Right. I mean, who knows? The housing market falls apart. The stock market falls apart. Suddenly you end up with these massive government deficits and no sense whether that was going to be, you know, six months, 18 months, six years or whatever. I mean, it ended up being a gradual sustained recovery from that point, but you didn't know in the time. Hopefully what we're facing now is a shorter window and a better fit for this one-time infusion. So the bottom line here is that we need the cash for budget year 22. We have the cash on hand. And so it's time to tap the rainy day fund, at least a portion of it, to deal with that issue in 22. Now, the committee also voted to increase the state's general obligation bond debt to just over $1.1 billion. Anything significant that you see there, Michael? Um, that's a modest increase. And to be honest, with with interest rates as low as they are, borrowing money is basically on sale. So the idea of doing some school construction or you know, deciding right now is the time to finance a new building on a college campus or those sorts of things that tend to be in the capital budget, um, you can borrow at such low interest rates, especially when you have a great credit rating like the state of Maryland does. So bumping that number up a little bit, um, nothing, nothing shocking there, I don't think. And when it comes to limiting the structural deficit in the future, that's something that, of course, everyone is very cognizant of. The committee made two recommendations. Number one is to cap the structural deficit in the 2022 budget at $700 million. The second is interesting to me, and that is to prioritize any federal stimulus funds to one-time expenditures as opposed to ongoing expenditures, which we know would affect the structural deficit. So the idea here would be any stimulus money that we get, let's use it for one-time stuff that we don't have to worry about in the future. So one-time spending, that kind of sounds like maybe investments in broadband infrastructure or capital investments like new technology for local health, health departments. Am I right? <laughs> I, I, I would have to think there's at least an opportunity if some of the things you care about and some of the things that we, the counties, care about are things that you can target with one-time funds, then, I mean, both of these recommendations that Kevin just just walked through, they point in the direction of, you know, go solve a problem. Here's a one-shot one, one -shot grant. Here's technology assistance, as opposed to here's a grant 
to go hire a bunch of people and make a long-term spending commitment. So if you're trying to read the tea leaves of what the, the fiscal leadership is saying, um, I think it's things like those that may be the more favored child when, you know, when, when this session gets all sorted out. So, you know, we're, we're we, we, the counties and, and communities across the state are really invested in moving the ball forward on broadband infrastructure. That is exactly the sort of thing you could say, hey, let's let's do one hundred and fifty million dollars and spend it on the things on this list that doesn't get you in trouble with a structural deficit if it's a one-time deal, basically. Right. And so, of course, MAKO, you know, Drew mentioned two initiatives that MAKO will have for 21. The first is building up broadband across Maryland. And then, of course, our local health departments, we know that they need new technology. They're using fax machines in some (laughs) circumstances, right? So we got to get them the technology they need. And I think everybody recognizes that. But let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we'll dig a little bit deeper into the Spending Affordability Committee and their recommendations. We'll talk about how those recommendations affect the Kerwin Commission, the Blueprint for Maryland. That's top of mind for a lot of people. We'll give you an update on the status of federal stimulus in Congress. And then we'll talk about a few other odds and ends, get you up to date on stuff we've been talking about on recent episodes. All that and more after the break. The NACO Higher Performance Leadership Academy, a 12-week online program, was designed in partnership with the Professional Development Academy. It enables frontline county staff to achieve their fullest potential, making them more capable, more effective leaders. The Academy gives each participant the tools they need to accomplish their goals faster and the competencies needed to close the leadership skills gap at the frontline. It is designed to be non-disruptive to the busy schedules of county professionals, requires only four to five hours each week, and there is no travel away from the county required. Many frontline managers are exactly the people we need to invest in and cannot afford to lose. The NACO High Performance Leadership Academy helps retain rising stars in county government and enable them to become better leaders. To learn more about the program's plan for 2021 and enroll yourself in your county leaders, visit http colon slash slash www.naco.org slash skills, or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Drew Jabin. On the front half, Michael and Drew, we talked about the Spending Affordability Committee. We talked about the above-the-fold headline of tapping into the state's rainy day fund to address some of the budget shortfall in fiscal 22. Now, everything is not all bad, although we do have a significant shortfall projected for 22. That shortfall is projected to drop by 2026. So it goes down and down and down until 26 uh, in their forecast. So things should be improving. Michael mentioned that, you know, there's a big expectation that we get this vaccine rolled out. Things get back to normal with the economy. And I'm interested, Michael and Drew, some of this is attributed to, you know, the, the use of state benefit programs. And this directly correlates to the pandemic. We know a lot of people right now are out of work. They need help from the state. But as that vaccine rolls out, more people get vaccinated. The idea here is fewer people rely on these state programs and the state will be able to recover in that way. So things start to look up. I mean, that that's got to be a big part of what they're looking at here. Michael and Drew, is that right? I think that's that's got to be a big part of it. Um, we have sometimes on this podcast and in other settings, we have sometimes talked about how the business of government 
is just poorly thought out for a smooth ride, that the business of government is the government needs to be there to help you in your times of crisis. So demand for some government services, things like Medicaid, um, they tend to go up at times when the economy is in crisis, and that means revenues are going down. So we're in that circumstance right now. We have a wave of Marylanders who have lost their jobs, don't have a stream of income. Um, they haven't received any support from the federal government since back in the spring or summer. Uh, they might have gotten extended benefits, but those have expired. They may even have just stopped searching for jobs for lack of opportunities. And they show up on our Medicaid rolls as people with low income and qualify for that benefit. Well, the state pays for a big chunk of those costs. That, you know, that caseload ends up being a driver for the state budget. So if things get better in the economy and you hope that they will within the you know next few years window we always look at, then revenues should bounce back a bit. And also some of that spending side should come down. So we're, we're sometimes used to looking at a state forecast that just gets worse and worse each year. You've seen these charts where five years out, the number seems unimaginably difficult. Mm -hmm. Here, if we think we'll be in some sort of economic recovery mode, then maybe we'll have the opposite, that those, those structural numbers will be closing because of changes on both sides of the ledger. And, you know, one, one thing I'd like to note, too, and I think this is where we start to get into the deeper dive and into what they said this week. And this all has to do with, with Kerwin, the blueprint for Maryland. And actually, they noted that the deficits become even smaller if the General Assembly overrides Governor Hogan's vetoes of the Kerwin Commission bill and a corresponding revenue package that would apply the state's sales tax to digital downloads, increase the tax on tobacco products, and create a new tax on digital advertising. The governor vetoed those proposals at the end of last session. We were in the midst of a pandemic. The budget wasn't looking good. So I think the governor said, look, I can't in good faith do these things because we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic. The analysis here seems to say if the General Assembly overrides the vetoes on that revenue package, things are going to look better. And we'll talk a little bit more about Kerwin and what they had to say there. But I think that would be a surprise to some people, Michael, that a lot of people figured, man, if, if you override the veto of Kerwin, things are going to get really bad. But it does have a corresponding revenue package. What are your thoughts about that analysis that basically telling the General Assembly you need to override these vetoes because it helps the budget overall? I think this is one of those topics that it there are enough moving parts. Just just the Kerwin education plan to to do better and greater things across our school systems and deliver more for our school children. That plan has so many different moving parts that start in different years and ramp up over different phases. I mean, that itself is really tricky to try and understand. And and then to ride along with it these multiple kind of complicated and maybe uncertain revenue sources, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, it's probably beyond most of our capacity to really digest all of this. But the analysts are, are basically doing their job and saying, you know, you've got a variety of paths forward, but if the General Assembly sticks to the things that it wanted to become law last year and got vetoed, so they passed the Kerwin plan. The governor vetoed it, saying we don't know if we've got the money. They passed a variety of these new revenue sources, basically with Kerwin in mind, and said that's the money that's going to go into this side fund to help fund things. 
Um, the governor said, I'm worried about the shakiness of our business climate. So he, he vetoed those bills too. But if you override all those vetoes, then run all the numbers on all these things. And at least in the short term, things things do get a bit better. The revenues actually show up before some of the new, more, the most weighty expenses on the state side. So I think that's the easiest way to look at it. If, if you look at this as a big bundle, the next couple of years actually get a little bit better. And then the long-term spending plan is a little challenging because Kerwin is an ambitious and expensive enterprise. You know, I have to say, Kerwin is one of those things that I thought it was going to be just over last year, but it continues to be <laughs> one of those hot topics. We had an education subcommittee meeting um, last week that was hosted by Montgomery County Council Member Craig Rice, our, who's our education subcommittee chair, and somehow every single topic comes back to Kerwin. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Is there going to be a delay? Is the veto going to be overridden? Is there going to be changes? Right. It's it's pervasive. Uh, without a doubt, it's it's that kind of circumstance, and and we we know that it's a it's a ten year phase in of a, a a really colossal new commitment to education funds. Some of it coming from the counties, but a big chunk coming from the state. So. Yeah, this is, again, even if you're not a fiscal person, that's the kind of thing that really has an impact on what you're thinking. If you're if you're an advocate for some other program you'd like to see the state step up on, uh, you may be competing for finite dollars against this big education plan. And, you know, I mean, I think the, the tea leaves are relatively clear. We think the legislature is going to override the veto, whether they tinker with the timetable or some of the specifics of the bill, I think that's less clear. But the idea that this recession is going to make Kerwin disappear, I think we should dispel our listeners from that notion, because I don't really think that's in play. Not at all. And actually, I mean, we need to point out, and this is where I think we get into, you know, the value added stuff from this podcast, when, when it comes to Kerwin, and as Drew mentioned, yes, it's the it's still the the biggest topic around, and I expect it to be for the years ahead. I mean, it's just it's never ending. But actually, the blueprint for Maryland's future fund, which is basically the implementation of Kerwin, that money that fund has enough money to pay for the reform recommendations through 2026 because we've already been putting money into the fund, right? Even before Kerwin becomes effective, there's a dedicated source there. So, Michael. I agree. It doesn't look like the pandemic is going to slow Kerwin down. And in fact, the analysis from the Spending Affordability Committee says you don't need to worry about Kerwin. We have that covered until 26. We have a dedicated uh, funding source there. So all this stuff that we're talking about in terms of revenue shortfalls and looking into the out years, you can pretty much take Kerwin off the table, according to the Spending Affordability Analysis, because we got that covered. It's already taken care of. I would I would probably put an asterisk on that and say, I, I don't know, I think reading between the lines a little bit at the conversation Drew just mentioned that we had with some stakeholders last week, I think the possibility of tweaking the timetables is still maybe in play, but I think the legislature's commitment to doing this plan by some date certain is still strong. So, you know, I, I think the most likely path for that is an override of the veto, 
the bill becomes law, and then you have some debate about a new bill that refines a few things. You bracket out a few 23s and you turn them into 24s, things of that nature that might soften things up for the you know two or three year window, despite having money in the dedicated fund. I think there's still potential for that to be, uh, you know, for, for, for that to be on the table and a prime consideration this session. And we, we know that they're going to have to do something about enrollment counts. We know enrollment counts are down because of the pandemic. That's also going to be part of the conversation. And I know that was a big part of the discussion that you all had last week with representatives from the state, teachers union, and of course, county folks on that education subcommittee call, which was which was really really informative, by the way. The other the other issue I want to get into here is stimulus fund. It was interesting to hear the Spending Affordability Committee say, we think that if the state of Maryland receives any more stimulus funds, that the governor should seek legislative input of how to spend those funds. So essentially, put them in the budget or, or make it some sort of public process with input from the General Assembly. They're asking the governor not just to spend that money, get input from the legislators before that happens. That stood out to me as well. It's interesting. It's kind of structure of government stuff to some degree. Uh, I mean, the Spending Affordability Committee is overwhelmingly um, composed of members of the General Assembly. The Secretary of Budget Management is a member. There are a few citizen members. I can't remember if there's anybody else from the executive branch, but it's principally a legislative body. So, you know, the notion of legislative leaders saying we'd like to have some process to see and guide this stuff that you know that that makes sense once you look at the roster i think and speaking of federal stimulus i don't want to ruin either one of your days i know that drew is very very upset and has been following this very closely when it comes to congress and their inability to get anything done with the stimulus and michael and drew it looks like congress as we sit here on thursday december 17th is close to a stimulus deal. They want to get something passed, ideally by the end of this week. But it looks like, once again, states and counties will be left out. There will not be any money that to help state and county governments who really are on the front lines of crushing this pandemic. Michael, this is disappointing on many levels. What are your general thoughts here? I mean, it seems like this has been a roller coaster. At first it was, now we're not going to get anything, and then, well, maybe, and then maybe, and they string us along, and it looks like now we're left out. So my, those are my basic thoughts. Um, I, I, I mean, this has been, you use the word roller coaster. That's exactly right. This has been back and forth, um, a, a multi-player conversation at the federal level with lots of different points of view and so forth. But for, for quite some time, we kept moving our expectations down that, okay, if it can't be 500 billion, we can do a $350 billion package that gets funds out to the states and local governments who can't just bust their budget in tough times. We have, we might have a reserve fund to dig into a little bit like we just talked about, but we don't have a billion dollars to just empty and say, we'll do this. We can't pay salaries with one-time money and so forth. The federal government is the only level of government that's really equipped to handle this kind of circumstance and to leave those of us who actually hire firefighters and public health workers and all the people who are in the highest demand of their entire career, for us to be left out of this package, 
um, because there's some fable that the money's going to get diverted and used as bailouts for pension funds or some other mythology that's about other states not like us. Um, we get cast aside. Uh, there's a lot of people who wanted this legislation to include some liability protection for employers. That's been cast aside. Those issues are being declared. They're just too hot to handle. Why on earth is support for EMTs on an ambulance? How can that possibly be too hot to handle? You've got to be kidding me. Right. And it's not like they haven't had time to deal with these issues. And look, I think states and counties have said, we'll take any money and, and you can attach any kind of restrictions for how we can spend it on it. I mean, we're not looking for a handout. You mentioned this, this myth about all the states wanting to bail out their failed pension systems. That's not the case here. And so that, that, that gets you know, intertwined in this discussion. And it's very unfortunate that that has become the talking point. It, it's a complete failure by Congress, in my opinion. It, it's absurd that you're not able to get money out to the folks who are really fighting this pandemic, states and counties and local governments. It, it's just, it's unbelievable to me. We'll have to keep following this. It doesn't mean that when the next Congress convenes, there won't be discussion about providing states and, and local governments with these needed funds. But it looks like for now, at least before Christmas, before the holidays, we will not be included in the next deal. And one thing that I am just astonished about, Michael, and you know, just because we've talked about this, the idea that Congress can't even include an extension of the Coronavirus Relief Fund spending deadline as a reminder, counties and states have to spend the money that they got from the CARES Act by the end of the year. And I think just a few weeks ago, the, the, the feeling that I got was everybody was on board with, yeah, you know, we probably should extend that deadline. You know, we understand that this pandemic is, is ongoing. We are in the worst of the pandemic right now. And states and counties are being asked to spend all that money before the end of the year or it re will revert back to the federal government. It's unbelievable to me that they can't even put that into this bill that will pass this week. We were hopeful that at least we'd get that. And, Michael, now that's off the table. I mean, what the heck is going on in Washington? I don't know that that's off the table, but it's not as securely in place as it seems like it should be. Um, but I, I think states and counties and cities have been in an impossible situation here because the only time Congress really acted was back in the spring. So this pandemic gets unleashed and they come to the rescue with a strong and solid relief effort to help individuals, to help people who've been unemployed, and to, to send some support out to state and local governments. And for the governments, they basically said, okay, we'll give you till the end of the year. And I think most people's thinking back in April and May was that the end of the calendar year would mean the duration of this problem. Well, all through August and then September and then October and then November, it's day by day, oh, Congress is negotiating a new plan and there's going to be another round of support and we're not going to leave you high and dry. And then deadline after deadline pass, if you're a county in Maryland and you got some allocation, you work things out with the state, you've been spending funds, you say, well, okay, we keep hearing that we're going to get an extension to use these funds later. We don't want to be broke and still have people who need personal protective equipment or, or we need emergency assistance for our hospital or we need some relief for some of our restaurants and local businesses. Like we still need to respond to those things if this crisis is going to continue. It's not done in September. It's not done in November. So what are you supposed to do? 
They keep saying we're gonna we're gonna give you an extension and we probably got more money coming. So you don't spend the money. And now we're into the month of December and they're saying, well, we might not even grant that extension. So go spend the money, you know, go buy four months worth of masks and so forth because you've got to spend the money this week. It's it's just absurd. It, it's very absurd to think that, you know, we understand as Congress, we need to get this money out the door back in the spring. But now, as we know, the next few months will probably be very dark. The pandemic is nowhere close to being done. We hope that vaccines are going to help. But now you're saying, yeah, we know you need the money, but just get it out the door right now. Hurry up and spend it. We don't care. We, we, we need you to spend the money now. It just doesn't make sense. It's mind boggling to me. But it is what it is. So we'll keep everybody informed of what's going on. We know that NACO, the National Association of Counties, is on top of this. They're continuing to work to, to get these provisions added to the bill. They're needed. They're important. But let's talk about vaccines. Let's switch topics. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, Michael's head to explode here the more we talk about Congress. So let's talk <laughs> about vaccines. We've all been really happy to see that, you know, vaccines have started to roll out across the country. Our healthcare workers are first in line as they should be. Drew, teachers this week and last week, I think, started to make a push. And this is really coming from not only the State Board of Education, but also from the teachers union. And oftentimes they clash, but they seem to be in agreement here that they'd like teachers to, to be bumped up to near the front of the line to get a vaccine. Why is that? What's the idea behind this push? So the plan that the Maryland Department of Health has submitted to the CDC includes workers deemed essential and critical industries, including education. But now there's a push to get teachers, school staff, and early child care professionals as the first priority for essential employees. And the idea is to get kids back into in-person learning, right? And we've seen sort of a bipartisan call to do that. But of course, if you bump the teachers and those essential workers up the list, somebody has to get bumped down. And I understand the push. And, I, and again, I think that people want kids to get back to in-person learning. We know a lot of kids are struggling. We know a lot of parents are struggling with how to make sure their kids are doing their online school while they themselves have to go to work. But is this something, Michael, that we're going to see more and more of? Do you think, you know, maybe unions or whomever is, or will start to say, well, what about our folks? They should be bumped up the list, too. I think it's inevitable, right? I think it's a it's a political certainty that, I mean, it, right now, the last I saw, I, I, I watched the legislative sort of oversight work group get a big presentation earlier this week, and the Department of Health has this stage, there's a big pyramid with a 1A and a 1B, and then here's going to be group two, and here's going to be group three, and naturally, we will see public sector employees say our people need to be here. Um, educators will say we need to be here. Uh, there's a there's an almost ironclad case for the health workers who are hands-on dealing with patients and direct care uh, being in the very first wave. But, I mean, this will end up being complicated and thorny. And what makes this difficult is the number of teachers who we want to get back into the classroom face-to-face -face with school children is an overwhelmingly large number. That's, a, that's, not, a, you know, that's not a rifle shot, that's a, that's a shotgun shot. And so there's lots of people in that class 
So that's a big decision to say we're going to move them ahead. That 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 pushes, you know, that's an awful lot of vaccinations for thousands and thousands of educators. I think there's a strong case for it, both practically and economically. But uh, it's not it's not as simple as, you know, you can just magic wand that to be so. I definitely think this plays into the whole huge discussion of, like you guys have said, returning to the in-class learning. I know that MSDE has said many times that they believe it's safe if you wear your mask um, and wash your hands and social distance that children should be able to go back to school. But I think by pushing teachers to the front, they're hoping that this kind of unites the entirety of the education community to hopefully get the vaccine, get it to teachers and get students and their families and educators all feeling comfortable more so with that in-person learning. Yeah, I certainly agree there. And, and you're speaking of in-person learning, we back before school started in the fall, we saw all these plans and, and sort of here's when we're going to transition to get some kids back into school. Of course, now we know that we are in a really bad place in the pandemic at the moment. And a lot of those plans seemingly have been put on hold. Is that what you're seeing across the state is that most folks are saying, you know what, we're not going to move forward. We're going to keep with distance learning because we just don't, we're not comfortable, like you said. Yeah, I definitely think you you guys said roller coaster earlier. And I think that same thing kind of applies here with jurisdictions making plans for in-person learning and the surges of COVID just don't allow comfortability with that in-person learning. So as of now, pretty much everyone is still learning virtually. Some counties have chosen to stay virtual through even January at this point. Right. Yeah, I, th I think you had a couple waves of decision-making with school boards and superintendents. You know, back in the summertime, we had troubling numbers, but there was a lot of expectation that maybe we're on the downswing. And if, if Maryland's numbers continue to sort of calm down, that if we continue that trend line, by the time we get to October, November, December, maybe we can start bringing a wave of students back in. We can do kids in shifts and so forth. Instead, the overall trend lines have gone the other direction. And as the weather is getting colder and we're seeing these problems nationwide and here in Maryland, too, positivity rates are up and so forth. You know, the, the plans we adopted and mused over in July and then again in September, October are starting to feel a little fantasy based rather than reality based. So we, we, we might have to buckle down for a while, but getting back to in-person learning is a common priority among just about every stakeholder. Just doing it safely and wisely is the, is the trick. That's the goal, of course, to get kids back into school, but to do it safely, to make sure that not only the kids are safe, but the teachers and other frontline professionals at our public schools are safe as well. Now, Michael and Drew, uh, you know, we talked last week about upcoming session and how that might look. I know both of you are insiders in Annapolis and you've been running around, you know, maybe not running around, but talking to people <laughs> via Zoom and on the phone about what next session might look like. And maybe next week we can talk about the latest on what we're hearing for next session. But I don't know. Do you do you do either one of you want to tease that a little bit? I, I guess we know that virtual meetings are going to be a big part of the legislature's plan. And I think the question is, 
is it growing into the overwhelming share of the policy making and deliberating plan? Is are we going to see even more of this become virtual and even less reliance on in person on the floor with you know equipment and masks and all that and spacing and so forth? So the trend line might be moving in that direction as we as as the general assembly like everybody is looking at the larger problem and figuring out how do you mitigate risks. So uh, people are chatting and I think it's worth following up on as things start to get a little more crisply focused. I think the common thing is that no one knows anything. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, everyone thinks that they know what could possibly maybe happen, but there's just no way to tell what the heck is going to be this 2021 legislative session in Maryland. I think that's fair. And I also think it's because the plans are evolving, right? And we we saw a skeleton plan that was put out maybe a month or so ago, maybe longer. But I think that plan is evolving. Things are changing every single day. So maybe you all go work your sources. Maybe we'll have some more uh, intel next week. But I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for walking us through the education sector topics. And, and we're very sorry, again, about the stimulus. I know that you are just punching a hole in the wall right now with, with how angry you are at Congress. But thank you for coming on. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. All right. That'll do it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. Of course, follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and the Conduit Street blog. But for Drew Jabin and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.